you'd like, you can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 35. reading through the book of Genesis, picking up in Genesis chapter 35, verse 16. We'll read the remainder of chapter 35, which is verse 16 through verse 29. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Then they journeyed from Bethel, When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called his name Benjamin. So Rachel died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Our sermon text is Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. 
and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our Father, the uh, world and everything in it you have made. What a wonder that of nothing you made the world. And what a wonder that you have shown yourself pleased to continue in its maintenance. Uh, even uh, though uh, this earth has plunged itself into sin and misery under, under her first king, Adam. And we rejoice that the second Adam, uh, the true king, has come and opens our eyes, uh, retrieving us out of darkness and showcases uh, the amphitheater of your glory, Lord, attesting to your wisdom and your power and your goodness. And doing this as the one who is your exact image such that we know you in him and we see your heart on display in the life of your son, Jesus Christ. You know, posture us to receive of his word even now. Posture us in trust towards you, Lord. We're so prone to unbelief and to anxieties and cares, and many of which, Lord, are alleviated by the word of your promise, which we are slow to believe. So build us up, Lord, in the faith that you have caused to spring forth in our hearts that we may glorify you by our trust. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Uh, the last few nights, my home has been all confusion. Uh, chaos has reigned at bedtime these last few nights, and each night has ended very similarly. And we put the children to bed only to have Olivia start screaming dreadfully and the other children try to talk over her screaming in an attempt to fix her screaming and each night the issue has been the same thing olivia is terrified of alligators trying to climb into her crib <laughs> i wish i were joking <laughs> the other children are attempting to calm her down and this to their credit Maisie's saying there are no alligators Olivia, there's no alligators. She's trying to reason with her. She is not to be reasoned with. Michael, at least, I think, had the credit of acknowledging the validity of her perception, turning to me and saying, Dad, if I just had my sword, I could fight the alligators. <laughs> I took a moment to assure Olivia that Maisie was right and to commend the young Presbyterian's courage, and to encourage her that she had a brave brother. Each night she does eventually fall asleep as the Lord sees fit to grant her sleep after we pray. And we've sung Psalm 23 a couple of times. I'm sure you've had similar nights. Maybe it was a child terrified of an alligator or something similar. Or maybe it was your own adult heart filled with endless worries and concerns 
robbing you of sleep and peace. Granted, from one angle, many of our concerns are not as baseless as Olivia's fear of alligators. That's what our Lord teaches us here. Food, drink, clothing. He says these are very real needs. That's what he says. Your heavenly father knows you need them. These are needs. They're legitimate. They have a basis in reality. And it's a need that's not just for today, but also for tomorrow. Thus, if they're not scarce now, who's to say they won't be tomorrow? Many of our worries have a kernel of legitimacy to them, don't they? Our care and our concern for our children easily turns into a nightmare of worry. Our concern to provide for our families easily turns into a nightmare of worry. Our concern about the future turns into a nightmare of worry. But from another angle, as children of God, the Son tells us, your anxieties are as baseless as the fear of alligators in Minnesota. Not because you don't have very real needs, very real vulnerabilities in this fallen and dangerous world. Rather, they're baseless because you belong to the maker of heaven and earth. They're baseless because the maker of heaven and earth knows your needs because he designed you to have those needs. Thus, even as creator, he shows himself inclined to provide for the very needs that he designed you to have, but it goes further still. For the children have seen the father favorably disposed beyond description in giving the beloved son. In making known the riches of his love poured not upon the righteous, but upon sinners, the very one for whom Christ has come. He says they're baseless, not because they have no grounding in reality, but because you belong to the living and true God who loves you as a father loves his children. But Mark, how often we live as if this were not the case. I'm sure you don't have to go very far back in your own recollection to think of nights where you have been robbed of sleep over some sort of worry or concern. We can mark how often legitimate cares swell into anxieties and worries due to what Christ here calls plainly little faith. <laughs> That's what he says, is it not? Now, certainly that's not the whole portrait of our worries and concerns, but we'd be fools not to hear that as a legitimate portrait, a legitimate angle on them, for it's the angle that Christ gives us. O oh, you of little faith, he gently rebukes us. So then what would our king have us consider when inevitably those worries threaten to swell and drown and rob of sleep once more. And perhaps moreover, what would he have us do in the stead of an endless and relentless expenditure of energy in the vanity of worry? Mm -hmm. So let's consider this morning, first, the children who worry, second, the father who provides, and third, the son who instructs and comforts. First, the children who worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? And then verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He assumes that we're a people prone to worry, does he not? He doesn't take a show of hands. He doesn't ask, hey, have every, any of you lost sleep in the past several weeks? Yeah, that's worry. He assumes that the life of his followers will in some sense know worry, know anxiety, know the trouble that comes over these cares. So what is worry? What is anxiety? It's very clearly at the heart of his concern. Five times he uses this word. Three times he says, don't be anxious. Or the King James Version, take no thought. Or the New King James Version and others, do not worry. Five times he uses some variation of that phrase. Furthermore, this isn't the only place that he deals with the matter of worry and concern. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples that you're going to be dragged in front of kings and governors. Don't worry about how or what you're going to say. Don't be anxious about the testimony that you're going to bear when that inevitably happens. It, it whiffs of something of the vulnerability that the future has to be the source of our worry, which is how he ends this teaching in Matthew 13, he tells the parable of the sower and the seed that falls in the ground that grows up and then is choked out by thorns. Jesus explains that those thorns are the worries, the anxieties, the cares of this life, which have a tendency to choke out the life of the word. Another really interesting episode is Luke 10, which is well known, where Martha is endlessly working to serve. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha appeals to Jesus, saying, don't you care that I'm working? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, and then commends the portion that Mary has selected. And so we see that worry, anxiety, concern seems to be this excessive and undue care given to a matter that in some way is beyond our control. That emerges clearly with reference to the future. Who of you can control the future? The matter is slightly different with food and drink, but what the Lord wants us to see that even though we think that we have control over the resources which we need, it's very tenuous control, is it not? It's certainly not an absolute command over these things. And so you can feel something of the problem of worry emerge. Care and concern are good when they are in their proper measure and in their proper place. But sometimes we're overly concerned. And sometimes we're inappropriately concerned. We have to tell our children that sometimes, don't we? This doesn't concern you. You're having a conversation as adults, and the children chime in. Hey, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? I want to know, too. And you have to lovingly tell them, this, this doesn't concern you, my love. Go fight alligators. <laughs> 
We're at risk in letting our concerns and our cares swell disproportionately. And we're at risk in letting our concern cross into matters that are really not of interest to us. Or we might say no direct bearing upon us. A more striking and blunt way to put this is we have a hard time minding our own business. And that is oftentimes a source of anxiety for us because we appropriate cares and concerns that the Lord has not given us to bear. Jesus here tells us that we're prone to worry. And that in and of itself is comforting because he knows our hearts, is it not? Once again, we come back to this glorious truth that Jesus Christ knows what is in you. He knows it plainer than you or I will ever know. And he addresses us based on the truth of that knowledge. And he pulls no punches. He doesn't create a rosy picture. He says, even you, beloved, are prone to worry. And there's comfort in that, for he is our great, sympathetic, high priest. Meaning we don't have to put on airs. We don't have to pretend as if we don't have the things that he assures you that you do have as he simultaneously reminds you of his love. He tells us we're particularly prone to worry about the basic necessity of life. Food, drink, clothing, shelter. He says, I know you need these. Your father knows you need these. You need these things. It would have been a particular area of concern for the first century. It's hard for us, I think, to feel the weight of these types of worries exactly. Is it not? Have you ever worried that there would be no food? I mean, perhaps you have. Perhaps you have had this experience. It's not completely unthinkable. But I would say the vast majority of you, myself included, I've never had that thought. I've never lost sleep over the prospect that tomorrow there's not going to be bread. Have you ever worried that there's not going to be clothing, that there's not going to be shelter? I guess perhaps maybe I'm speaking too generalizing because in 2020 we did feel something of our tenuous existence, didn't we? All of a sudden everybody was aware of supply lines, empty shelves, things that we had never thought about before. Never it occurred to us. All of a sudden, every YouTuber is showing the world these empty shelves at Walmart. And it was like, well, wait a minute, we're vulnerable. It's like, look, you've been vulnerable the whole time. The whole time. Just because the shelf is empty now doesn't mean you weren't vulnerable then. <laughs> but on the whole, we don't feel this with the intensity that they probably would have. Consider his early followers. Some of them had left jobs to follow him. We already met the disciples who did that. They left father and boat and net very distinctly in the call of ministry. It was a very real question. He's like, uh, let me do this or that. I'll, I'll go wherever you go. And the Lord says, I don't have much. I don't have a place. I, there's, it's a very vulnerable existence following me. Jesus teaches about the reality of persecution to which his people are constantly vulnerable. He says, look, you might have to flee. Jesus talks about the ongoing miseries of this life that we're going to see in a different light because we're responsible. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines. These things are going to deeply destabilize the earth. You're not immune from that. 
as my followers. You're just as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable, as my followers. All of which is to say that our lack of worry over these particular things likely isn't trust. More likely, it's abundance and the delusion of security. And 2020 was a good glimpse into that, wasn't it? Where perhaps you felt vulnerability creep up in your heart in a way that it never had before. That's what he's talking about here. It would, sil- it would be silly to feel the vulnerability of supply chains and think that our hope was in building better supply chains. That's what he's addressing here. In a way, Jesus is asking us to consider life on the run. Life in famine. Life in wartime. Life in mass persecution. The astonishing call to worry is astonishing not because it's issued in the face of a guarantee of plenty and to a people who need nothing because of their ingenuity. (laughs) The astonishing call not to worry is astonishing because it holds true in a time of little for a people who might be forced to give up everything. Do you hear that? Can you hear that? We can look at this from another angle. Michael Reeves, he wrote this lovely book. I think it's called Rejoice and Tremble. He asks an insightful question. As Westerners, has our abundance resulted in more or less anxiety over the future? That's a good question. (laughs) Certainly a provocative question. It's maybe difficult to answer in a certain way, but the general sense is that With all the abundance that we have, we haven't become more content, more confident, but rather we've become more afraid of losing anything. (laughs) Our abundance isn't like the blubber of a whale. It's like the gold of a dragon. (laughs) That wasn't bad on the fly. of a whale is just pure access to protect. If it gets bitten by a shark, you're fine. The gold of a dragon, you kill to protect. And you're terrified of losing. That's what our abundance has generated for us. That's the point that Reeves is driving at. And it's nice to hear an Orthodox Christian say something that Tolstoy already observed a while ago, because that's exactly what Pierre Bazukov learned. The richest man in Russia who thought that perhaps philanthropy and all of his wealth was to be the source of some contentment, but he found none there. And it wasn't until he was taken captive and placed in a line of prisoners that he saw a man eating a scrap of bread around a fire with a full and thankful heart because that man had his daily bread and the warmth of fire at that moment, which is exactly what Paul says. If we have food and clothing with this, we will be content. 
1 Timothy 6.8. That's a pretty impressive host of witnesses. Michael Reeves, Leo Tolstoy, and St. Paul. <laughs> you know it's got to be true. It isn't more, which is a bulwark for our souls. God is the bulwark for our souls who gives us enough. I fear we've missed that in our time of abundance. So mark your tendency to worry as an excessive and inappropriate concern. And also ask if the plenty that you've been given has produced any real contentment. And if it hasn't, what makes you think that that's the source of your security, the source of your peace? If it can't produce contentment, then surely it can't put to rest our worry, so we must seek it somewhere else. Thus, we can go on to consider the Father who provides. Our Lord draws our attention to lessons from creation, lessons from providence, lessons about our Heavenly Father. We can note immediately that the Lord assumes an orthodox doctrine of creation, it's not random, that it is particular, it has been designed, and it continues to bear testimony about the one who made it. Children, what is the work of creation? Are you memorizing your catechisms? What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all thing of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Well done. Keep up. Good work on your catechism. Jesus tells us that that's true. He says that's exactly right. God made the world, and he hasn't just made the world, but he made it particularly. He made it so that the world shows us something about who God is. That's what Jesus draws our attention to. My children make pictures for me very often. Perhaps yours do the same. And they give them to me, and I see their little creations as a display of their abilities. And I see in their little abilities set on display in the gift of love that they make evidence of their love for me. Children, we can look at creation as a demonstration of God's wisdom and power and goodness, which tells us something true about our God. And that's what Jesus does here. He says the theater of nature is a testimony to God's abundant provision. That's very much what Psalm 104 teaches as well. Psalm 104, verse 28, all creatures look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Jesus, as the greater Solomon says, not consider the ants, but consider the birds. <laughs> consider the flowers. The birds of the sky, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The flowers of the field, they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You can find testimony in the sky. You can find testimony in the field. Heaven and earth, the whole of creation, bears witness to God. And the particular witness, the particular testimony is his willingness to provide. 
Neither is it a bare willingness to provide. That's the testimony of the flowers, isn't it? There's an excessive provision. There's a sort of superfluity of beauty. It's utterly unnecessary. That's what Jesus highlights. He says they're not even here for very long. And yet he adorns them in beauty. There's not just the bare willingness, a begrudging willingness, but rather as we confess about God, he is abundant in goodness. And that in a variety of displays. And then he takes our observations from nature and he turns them up to 11, as it were. He says, you are much more precious than these. He says, if he's willing to provide for birds and he's willing to clothe flowers in glory, how much more are you? Now, I think we can hear in this an echo of God's special relationship with human beings in general. I don't think that's exactly what the Lord is saying here. But certainly the evocation of creation would call to mind that unique place of man in the creation order. That it's man as the crown jewel of creation. That it's man who stands in special relationship to God. And even though that relationship has been broken by virtue of sin, the astonishing fact is, is there's still a general love towards man that God continues to extend. Matthew 5 is already pressed this home using very similar gifts. Upon whom does the sun shine? Upon whom does the rain fall? Well, it's to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. It's to the sinners and God's people alike. Or as Paul puts it, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying hearts with food and gladness. He says he's done this for people the world over from time immemorial. God's provision and care continues even for those who do not acknowledge him, bearing witness to the abundance of his goodness. Yet it's very clearly the especial care of the Father that the Son points out to us here, which is the answer to our particular worries. Who feeds the birds? It's not the lady in the park with Michael's tuppence. It's your heavenly father. Your heavenly father feeds the birds. And your heavenly father is none other than the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth. Thus, it's not just God's general love for man which provides us comfort. It's God's covenantal love for his people, ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ, assured to us by the very eternal word of glory who says, this is who the Father is. You can rest in this, beloved. For this very reason, I have come. I know my dad to be one of the most generous men that I've ever met. It's a great blessing to be able to say that in truth. I've known it because I've watched him. I've watched him give to strangers. I've watched him give to our friends. I've watched him give to our family. But above all, he gave to me and to my siblings. 
Jesus says if the living and true God is so willing and able to provide the grass and the birds and the strangers with good things, how much more to the children? Oh, you of little faith. Can you hear this as the word of the Son? That the one who made you, made you with needs. And the fact that he made you with needs in and of itself bears testimony to a willingness to supply those needs. And his goodness has been on display since time immemorial as he has supplied those needs to people who have not acknowledged him. How much more to those who have come to bow the knee and declare that you are righteous in all that you do. That we deserve your wrath and your judgment. But that in Jesus Christ we have received your mercy. How much more is he willing to provide for the children? But there's also a word here for the unbelievers that if you do not yet know the Son, if you've not yet come to faith, you should take no comfort from the the abundant goodness of the Father on display in creation. He does do you good, that is true. But he does you good in order to bring you to a sight and a sense of your evil. He continues to do you good to bring you to repentance. Furthermore, the pinnacle of his love is not the sending of rain. It's the sending of the Son, Jesus Christ. For the true and eternal comfort of the Father comes only to those who flee to the Son, who embrace the Son as God's ultimate provision for what we need as sinners. Not bread, not wine, but true bread and true wine. Which comes in Christ and in Christ alone. So we can consider last the Son who instructs and comforts. We must never lose sight of the Son. He's the one teaching us here. He's the one instructing us here. It is the King upon the throne who is giving wisdom to his children, the children whom God has granted him. He's the one who says, don't worry about your life. And he lived it as one who had a life to worry about. He lived it as flesh and blood, who needed food and drink, who needed clothing and shelter. The wonder of the doctrine of Christ's two natures, true God, true man, assures us that he addresses us here as someone who shared the same needs, who astonishingly was called to adopt the same posture of trust before his father. He addresses us here as a brother who is near and not one who is removed from such necessities. That's a strong testimony, is it not? One who is known, felt, tasted the vulnerabilities that comes with the human condition. And so what does he say to our worrying hearts? First, he does gently rebuke us. I mean, you hear that here, doesn't he? He says, what has all your worrying gotten you? (laughs) This is a great angle on this. What has your worrying gotten you? 
has your worrying produced life? Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? That's such a good question. It's so thought-provoking. It forces you to ask, yeah, what has worrying gotten me? Certainly, I've spent many hours worrying. Have I received anything in return for that investment? I guess I have. I've received a restless and fretful soul. I've received poor sleep and thus poor health. Interesting. In my misguided attempt to secure the needs of my life by worrying, I've actually accomplished the exact opposite. Maybe I don't know anything. I'm sure that's what that question provoked. That was a line of thinking that the question provoked in me. I had an epiphany in my office. The very expenditure of energy that we deceive ourselves in thinking moves us towards life, moves us in the exact opposite direction of life. And that's what he says here. It's not just that you can't add anything to your life by worrying. You're actually detracting from your life by worrying. And he also tells you you're acting like Gentiles. <laughs> it's another gentle rebuke. The Gentiles seek after these things. This is a little bit uncomfortable for us. He's very clearly using this in a negative way. <laughs> he's saying the effect is that your behavior is dishonorable. It's beneath you. It's ignoble. It's disreputable. Fill in the blank. This is how people act when they don't know their right hand from their left. This is what a fool does. This is how a cure again would act. War and peace, not a Rostov. This is how Uriah Heep or Mr. Murdstone would behave. David Copperfield. This is behavior that's not suitable to the Peggotty household. You get the idea. This is what I do to my son when I tell him that his behavior is beneath the Presbyterian gentleman. <laughs> They're minor infractions, I assure you. <laughs> he says, how unfitting. How out of keeping with who you are as children of God. How inconsistent with what you now know to be true about God. The Father has opened unto you freely the treasures of heaven, and here you are frittering your lives away over bread and wine. He's given you the greater, won't he give you also? The lesser is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? You know now that it is. You know that God has made you for himself to worship him, to know him, to love him. And the heart gets set on food and drink and clothing, the accumulation of stuff, and then fetters itself away when we feel like we don't have enough stuff or haven't stored up enough to guard us against the uncertainties of the future. The sun here leaves us in disbelief over our own ability to be so short-sighted, but also in the care of the Father. That's where he would have us go when our legitimate cares begin to swell disproportionately. 
go to the Father. He doesn't just rebuke, he directs. He directs us first in prayer to the Father. Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. This sounds almost identical to what he's already said in verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. It's the same phrase. Jesus here is setting forth prayer as that good gift of God to avail ourselves of when those worries and those concerns begin to swell disproportionately into a tempestuous soul. He says, run to your father. Make known your needs to him, not because he doesn't know, but because he's your refuge. He's your strength. He's your certainty in the face of whatever troubles this world has. Go to him. Peter teaches the same thing. Paul teaches the same thing. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He expands the scope of what could potentially trouble us. He says, anything (laughs) does anything cause you anxiety does anything cause you concern go to the one who loves you and notice this isn't a mechanical process that he envisions here as if going to him somehow you're gonna do the right song do the right dance to get the right thing to put your heart at ease no this is the comfort that comes by the embrace of a father It's equivalent to me picking up Olivia when her little heart is battered about by concerns that she doesn't fully understand. She's not to be reasoned with. And it's the equivalent of just holding her and assuring her of my love. This is the good gift of prayer and fellowship that opens up for us as we run to the Father. Lay our needs before him, not because he doesn't know, but because he delights when we cast ourselves upon him in the sun. Peter says the same thing. Cast all your anxieties on God, for he cares for you. Beloved, stunningly, he cares more about you than you care about you. And we know this, don't we? We know this because he's already given you the most precious gift conceivable in all that is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the point that Paul makes, is it not? When he says, the one who gave you the son, how will he not also give you every good thing? Big concerns, little concerns, the future, the present, cast it upon him in the assurance that he is not indifferent towards you, beloved, for he has assured you that he has spared no expense to secure you for himself in the giving of the Son. Peter says he cares for you. Do your worries lead you into the Father's arms 
in prayer? Do they lead you to think upon the magnitude of his gift in the beloved son and how everything other than the son is really just pennies in compare to the riches that have opened unto us in him? Our worries lead us to many dark and unhelpful places, don't they? Sleeplessness, the search for distraction or coping mechanisms, overeating, overdrinking, the numb of entertainment, anything to assuage the ache and relentless worry that can overtake us. Beloved, let Christ lead you by the hand of his love into the presence of the Father who is the true and living God who has spoken so plainly of the love he freely bestows. Even when you act like my daughter Olivia. <laughs> disrupting his worship. <laughs> but he brings one final and great comfort, namely the certainty that he has given us to provide for lesser things frees us to seek the more that he alludes to here. He says life is more. The body is more. It's not to be spent seeking the less. It's to be sent seeking the more. And that's what he says here. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We cannot add to our own lives. So he says you can't add anything. All your days are written in God's book. They are given to us the number of hairs on your head. The length of your days, they are given to us. They are received from God. But the Father gives us gift upon gift, grace upon grace, adorning those days with his loving kindness, such that those who follow the Son in faith are told that they will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 19, 29. Does that mean we're going to be rich? No. Does that mean we're never going to be hungry? No. Does that mean we'll never have to flee for our lives? No. In fact, Jesus assures us that our days will be filled with trouble. That's how he closes here, astonishingly addressing a people who are worried, closing on the note, hey, yeah, there's going to be a lot of trouble. <laughs> because comfort isn't to be found in the downplaying or the avoidance of trouble. Comfort, contentment, security, peace is to be found in the arms of the Son who has conquered the world such that all things now serve his purposes, including our hunger, including our nakedness, including famine and persecution and sword and things present and things to come, all of which now are marshaled forth not as testimonies of separation from the love of God, but as stopping places on the way to the full realization of his glory. As he sees us through these things, promising us enough bread for as many days as he has written for us. And then in ending our days, 
and sending the son to retrieve us and to bring us home. Beloved, that is the ache balmed. That is the refuge which secures us. Not that we will never know want, but that we will truly know the God with a cattle on a thousand hills in the Lord Jesus Christ as one who is favorably disposed toward us more than we can ever fathom in this life. Hear this word, beloved. Rest in it. Take it into your hearts and minds as the enemy would seek to steal your sleep and rejoice because it's true, because it comes from the Son. Let's pray. Grant to us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, O Lord. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.